God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity, the privilege that we have that on this cold, dreary morning we can gather in a warm place and more than that, we can open up your word and allow your word to speak. And so God, as we remember this story that happened 2,700 years ago, would you apply it to our hearts today? Would you reveal that you are the God of this story and the God of our story? And so, Holy Spirit, would you speak to every single person sitting here this morning, every single person listening online, or even someone who might be listening five years from now because of technology? God, would you land this passage in our heart through me or in spite of me, but we're excited for what you're going to do. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, confession time. Any math people out there? All right, you don't have to be ashamed. Do you like math? I like math. And one of the reasons I like math is because it's, it's stable, it's predictable, it's true, it's reliable. Like one plus one equals two. All right, I didn't even put up the answer key yet. Two plus two equals four plus four equals four times four equals 16. Yeah, we like math. It's predictable. And contrary to what most school-aged children believe, it has a ton of practical application, right? Not only does it keep us from getting ripped off the rest of our lives, but engineers. We have a church with tons of engineers. Do you use math as engineers? I sure hope so. Every time I drive over that bridge, I sure hope that you're good at math, right? Or, or how much air pressure uh, uh, an airplane can withstand. I hope that you've calculated that, right? Or maybe those in the military, they use math as well. Officers, commanding officers will, will count how many soldiers and planes and tanks and artilleries they have versus the enemy and how many soldiers or, or tanks or planes and whether or not they have them. And it's usually pretty easy from a math standpoint to see this person's going to win, Right? But what happens in our story today is we see a story that when God enters the math equation, it changes the math. It changes the numbers. In our story today, we're going to read about the people of God trusting God when perhaps the greatest threat to their country has happened in the history of their country. The greatest military threat is standing outside the walls of Jerusalem. It's the story of King Hezekiah and King Sennacherib. It's found in 2 Chronicles 32. You can turn there while I give you this quick overview video that will catch you up on the whole book. The second book of Chronicles was originally part of 1 Chronicles, written by Ezra between 450 and 425 BC, after Israel's return from exile in Babylon. The book continues the retelling of Israel's history, picking up after King David's death. In similar fashion to 2 Kings, the author focuses in on several kings of Judah, this time excluding the rebellious kings of the north. The stories recall kings that were faithful to the law, who worshipped God alone and rid the kingdom of idolatry. As a result of their obedience, God blessed their reign over the people. These faithful kings are contrasted with new stories of kings who failed to follow God's word, whose ignorant choices ultimately led to the downfall of the kingdom. These character studies are meant to teach future Israelite generations about their family history while emphasizing the importance of living in obedience to God and his word. 
Chronicles ends with Cyrus, the king of Persia, proclaiming that the Israelites should return to their home after 70 years of exile in order to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. The nation of Israel is delivered from bondage and given a chance to faithfully follow God while awaiting his promise of a future hope. So the time of the kings in Israel and Judah can really be summarized like this. If there was a good and godly king, it went well for the people. If there was an ungodly king who turned away from God, then it went really poorly for the king, for the people. That can pretty much summarize the history of the kings of Israel and of Judah. Today we're going to learn about one of the good kings, a guy by the name of Hezekiah. And actually, the story of King Hezekiah is, thrill, is told three times in the scriptures. It's told here in 2 Chronicles chapter 29 to 32. It's also told back in 2 Kings chapter 18 to 20. And then again, in the Isaiah the prophet, it, it's mostly a book of prophecy, but right in the middle in chapters 36 to 39, again, this story of God's great deliverance of his people under King Hezekiah is told there again. It's a story of a godly king who trusted God to deliver Jerusalem from the nation of Assyria, perhaps their greatest military threat ever. So let me set the context of what's going on here. Hezekiah comes to the throne at a time of great danger and political upheaval. During the time of his father, King Ahaz, the great threat to the, to the nation of Judah was actually the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria just above. In fact, those kings had, had united together and invaded them, and so Ahaz, King Hezekiah's father, looks even further north to this emerging world power by the name of Assyria and says, hey, if I can get the biggest bully on the block on my team, it will go well for me. And so he sends tribute to the king at that time named Tilgath-Pileser. Now, if you think it's hard to pronounce these things, imagine how hard it is to sign them, right? <laughs> Tilgath Pillier, is there Sennacherib? There's no sign for that, is there? No. <laughs> well, Ahaz, <laughs> I'm just going to give her time to catch up. <laughs> Ahaz, rather than turning away from the idols of the people and turning to the Lord for help, he turns to the biggest bully on the block. And have you heard the phrase, making a deal with the devil? It's kind of that. It never goes well, right? Because eventually the devil will turn on you. He befriends the biggest bully on the block, and now during the reign of his son, it gets really scary. See, the people of Assyria were a brutal people. They ruled with fear, and they terrified their enemies. They had figured out war on an entirely new level. That with technological advancements, with battlements and siege engines, they were far more advanced than previous armies and, and, and conquering kingdoms. They would often lay siege to a city, cut off all food and water going in, and completely decimate the people that they conquered. They also engaged in psychological warfare, meaning whenever they conquered a, a foe, they were brutal and they threatened those with, with just this overwhelming sense of force, trying to break the will of the people before they even got there. Some of the things that they would do is that if they uh, defeated uh, foes, they would take the commanding officers and, and leaders of the people, and they would skin them alive and let them bake in the uh, Middle Eastern sun. 
during the, the wars and the, and the furies back, uh, skirmishes back and forth, if they captured or killed anyone, they would often behead them and then fling the heads of their conquered foes back into the city among people who knew them. You guys remember uh, the story of Jonah? The capital city of Assyria is Nineveh. There's a reason that Jonah didn't want to go there. There's a reason that Jonah didn't want God to show mercy to these people who are threatening his people. And during King Hezekiah's reign, Assyria has become now the dominant world power, and it's already conquered the kingdom of Syria that used to bewilder Judah. It already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, sacking the city of Samaria in 722 BC and sending all of the northern kingdom into exile. And now we read that King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sets his sight on Jerusalem and on King Hezekiah. This all happens during King Hezekiah's reign, and so what would we expect him to be doing? Preparing for war. Probably getting his soldiers and his, and his city ready for a siege. And, and he does prepare for war, but he does so in a way that's maybe a little different than we would expect. He focuses his attention and his energy on getting the people right with their God. See, in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 32, we read, After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and had camped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. That phrase, after these things, makes us do what? What things? And so in order to answer that question, we go back to the previous three chapters, and we see in chapter 29 that Hezekiah cleanses the temple and restores worship among God's people. Then in chapter 30, the people once again celebrate the Passover feast together, uh, honoring God and remembering his power and how he delivered them from the people of Egypt. In chapter 31, Hezekiah reorganizes the priests and gets them on rotation so that they are serving faithfully. Hezekiah has focused the majority of his energy on getting people right with God and restoring the worship of God's people, even though the primary threat is a political one. Is a military one. And we're told that Hezekiah is a godly king. He's concerned primarily with the heart of his people following Yahweh. He could have spent his time and his energy in so many different ways, but that is what he focuses on. Now, the stories in the, in the Bible present Hezekiah as a godly king. Not a perfect king, as we'll see later on, but a godly king in which we're to learn from. Sennacherib, on the other hand, like most ambitious kings, isn't satisfied with his own country and the conquest of Syria and Israel. He now sets his sight on Jerusalem. The tribute from his father Ahaz had stopped following long before, and so he plans to do to them what he's done to every other enemy that he's faced, utterly crush them and make them a vassal state. Let's read first eight verses. After these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city, and they helped him. A great many people were gathered, and they stopped all the springs and the brook that flowed through the land, saying, Why should the king of Assyria come and find much water? 
he set out to work resolutely and built up the wall that was broken down and raised towers upon it. And outside it, he built another wall and he strengthened, strengthened the Milo in the city of David. He also made weapons and shields in abundance. And he set combat commanders over the people and gathered them together in the square at the gate of the city and spoke encouragingly to them saying. So it's not that he's doing nothing from a military standpoint, right? I mean, he hears that Sennacherib's on his way, and so he begins to prepare. He, he shuts up the springs of water so that they don't have access to water. It makes it more complex for them to lay siege. He rebuilds the wall, and he builds another wall, and he sets towers of defense upon it. He begins to organize the military officers. And so he's not doing nothing. He's preparing. He's doing what he can when he knows that this foreign army is invading. But in verse 7, we see this beautiful, beautiful act of faith. He says to the people, be strong and courageous. Have we heard that before in the Bible? All over. And often it's in response to who God is. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. See, Hezekiah knew that when you include God into the equation, the calculus is different, isn't it? See, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He has promised to be the shield and the defender of his people if only they would trust him. And so Hezekiah, even though he works and even though he prepares, his confidence is not in his own work, his own preparation, his own battle strategy, but rather in the Lord his God. That's confidence well-placed, isn't it? And in this, the people take confidence. See, there's going to be a battle, but it's going to be more than a battle between, between Judah and Assyria, more than a battle between King Hezekiah and King Sennacherib. It's actually going to be a battle between the Assyrian people and the God of Israel. Verse 9, after this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, sent his servants to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, On what are you trusting, that you may endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you, that he may give you over to die by famine and by thirst, when he tells you, The Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars and commanded Judah and Jerusalem before one altar you shall worship and on it you shall burn your sacrifices? You see, according to Sennacherib, like why would you tear down all of the other altars and the, and the places to offer sacrifice? It just doesn't make sense. If you want the favor of, the, of your God, you should, you should have as many of those as possible. But that's not how Yahweh wanted to be worshipped, was it? And so in cleansing the temple, in tearing down the high places and the idolatrous altars, Hezekiah is returning to the Lord, but Sennacherib doesn't know that. He thinks that, that the way to gain favor with God is to, is to offer as many sacrifices as possible. And so he's saying, you know, even though none of the other gods of the people have helped them out, your king's doing it wrong. What hope do you have? Verse 13, do you not know... What I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands at all able to deliver them out of my hand? Who among all the gods of those nations that my fathers devoted to destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand? 
that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand. Now, therefore, do not let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this fashion, and do not believe him, for no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to deliver his people from my hand or from the hand of my fathers. How much less will your God deliver you out of my hand? Sennacherib's strategy in this psychological warfare, so to speak, is to turn the people against their king, isn't it? To, to turn their people against Hezekiah and against their God. And the logic in his mind is clear. None of the other people's gods have done anything to stop me. What makes your God any different? You will fall before me like all the others who trusted in their gods. You see, to Sennacherib, it's just simple math. I have the superior army, the technology. I've done this to everyone that I've faced. They've trusted in their gods. Their gods have failed them. What's going to make you different? And if I can break your will even before I get to your city to lay siege, I've already won. And so then he, the servants that he send begin to pile on with their two cents. They say this, verse 16, and his servants said still more against the Lord God and against his servant Hezekiah. And he wrote letters to cast contempt on the Lord, the God of Israel, and to speak against him, saying, Like the gods of the nations of the lands who have not delivered their people from my hands, so the God of Hezekiah will not deliver his people from my hand. And they shouted it with a loud voice in the language of Judah to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to frighten and terrify them, psychological warfare, in order that they might take the city. And they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the gods of the peoples of the earth, which are the works of men's hands. You can see the tension beginning to build, can't you? You can see the Assyrian people ratcheting up their, their, their curses and their, and their taunts, their trash-talking, including and almost making it a, a battle not against the people of Jerusalem, but a battle against their God. Now, we've read the rest of the story. We know this isn't going to go well for you. To mock God, to call God out, to equate God with the gods of all of the other nations, I don't care what kind of military strategy you have, the math changes. So what does Hezekiah do? He prays. He gathers his friend, the prophet Isaiah, Because at this point, what else are you going to do? There's no amount of military genius that's going to get you out of this. You can't strategize around this. You must trust in the Lord. And so we read in verse 20, Then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. Now, don't you wish you were a fly on the wall to hear what they prayed? Because it just goes right on here. Don't you wish you know what they cried out in that moment? Well, you don't actually have to wonder because 2 Kings and Isaiah record it. Isaiah chapter 37 verse 16 tells us exactly what he prayed. Oh, Lord of hosts, God of Israel. Actually, it's not in 2 Kings. It's just in Isaiah. Sorry about that. I misspoke. That's another passage down the line. Oh, Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands. They have cast their gods in the fire, for they were no gods, 
but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. He says, God, you alone are God. And you know King Sennacherib's mocking words directed at you. Are you going to take that? You know the threat that they are to us. They've, they've sacked every city they've gone to. But God, they're no threat to you. And so would you save us from their hand? Now the story here in Chronicles moves God right to action. But we learn both from 2 Kings and from Isaiah 37 verbatim that God actually responds to this prayer with a prophetic word for Isaiah and for King Hezekiah. You can read in 2 Kings 19, 20 to 28, or verbatim, the exact same thing in Isaiah 37, 22 to 29. But let me just give you a little snapshot, a little overview. God is speaking these words to Sennacherib, and this is what he says. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord. Further down, he says, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in and you're raging against me because you have raged against me and the complacency has come to my ears. Raging against, doesn't that remind you of Psalm 2? The people's plot and the kingdom's rage against the Lord and against his anointed one. We're we're probably to make those connections. And your complacency has come to my ears. I will put a hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back by the way which you came. So what's going to happen? God's going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. Second Chronicles 32, verse 21 to 23. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all his enemies. And he provided for them on every side. And many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations from that time onward. God wins. Yahweh wins. We read a couple more interesting details in the other accounts. 2 Kings 19. And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of Assyria. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. 185,000 soldiers dead. Do you ever read the Bible and wonder, come on, did that actually happen? I mean, if that were to happen, surely we would have some other record of something like that, some other extra-biblical resource, I mean, a, a defeat of that magnitude. Now, the tricky thing about reading ancient sources is that anybody who wrote down things, kings, you know what they didn't write down? Their greatest defeats. They only wrote down the things that they wanted to brag about. They only built monuments, not of their defeats, but rather of their victories. In fact, there wasn't, archaeologists had never discovered Nineveh until the mid-1800s. And so this used to be an area where, where scoffers at the Bible would point back and say, come on, they're talking about kingdoms that don't even exist anymore. And then they found Nineveh. 
And there was this trove of archaeological discoveries that's really exciting. Actually, you can see one of the tablets that they found. A tablet uh, that, that, that kind of um, memorializes his sacking of the city of Lachish, which we read about earlier. And, 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 and in King Sennacherib's words on one of these things, we read this. 46 of Hezekiah's strong-walled towns and innumerable smaller vill- villages I besieged and conquered. As for Hezekiah, the awful splendor of my lordship overwhelmed him. <laughs> Gosh, you got to love the language, right? In it, Sennacherib noted that he had made Hezekiah a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. Okay? So you're like, well, what kind of extra evidence is that? One scholar writes about this. Although Sennacherib painstakingly recorded the cities he captured and destroyed, one city is conspicuously absent, Jerusalem. He speaks only of besieging Hezekiah in the city, not of taking it or Judah's king. What happened? The Assyrians, like other great empires of the time, left no records of their military defeats. What happened? God happened. He struck down his army so that he had to tuck tail and return home without the prize. Twenty years later, two of his own sons ambushed him in the Assyrian temple and killed him, and one of them ascended to the throne, just like God's word says. We know that from history. Now, this is an interesting little dive through Israel's history, Judah's history, a nice little story that's somewhat compelling. It's not like reading genealogies, and that's nice, but some of you guys are thinking, all right, Pastor Kyle, what in the world does this have to do with me? How in the world are we going to apply this story of 2,700 years ago about a king that, man, I think his name's like another book of the Bible, right? There is no book of Hezekiah, by the way. Here's three lessons that we can draw because I think, well, here's just three. One, when God is a factor, the math is just different. When God is a factor, the math is different. A military victory for Hezekiah over Sennacherib just didn't make sense apart from God. But God changes everything, doesn't he? He gives us different math, a different way to approach the world. See, God unleashes his supernatural power and blessing for his people who are seeking him. Interesting question. Is there anything in your life right now that you need to entrust to the Lord? You've done the math, and it doesn't really make sense, but you forgot to factor God into the math? Is, is there anything in your life right now that you're, you're facing, you've been maybe praying about or you've been wrestling through a decision or, or maybe there's a step of faith and, and it just, on paper, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but you haven't really factored God into the equation. This story tells us that God is a game changer. Now, I'm not saying that those lists are unimportant or that you shouldn't do a, a risk and, and, and cost analysis, benefit analysis, do those things, but factor in God. And if he's clearly telling you to do something, give that its proper weight. Second, Hezekiah's trust in the Lord for salvation gives us a glimpse into how God saves, what Jesus does for us. What did Hezekiah contribute to the military victory? Nothing. Nothing. There was no battle fought. They didn't use the towers or the engines or, the, or the, all of the military organization that he had done. He trusted the Lord for salvation, and God miraculously accomplished it. That tends to be how God works. 
In fact, that is exactly how God saves us. Today, we're not staring out from the walls of a city as a brutal army encroaches. But you and I do face a far more dangerous foe. As human beings who have rebelled against our creator, we face the twin enemies of sin and death that are even scarier than the king of Assyria. We have sinned, and we are under its power, and the Bible tells us that the wages that we have earned for that sin is death and God's judgment. We can't undo it, but with any amount of good or goodwill on our part, it won't make our guilt go away. We will die. Death will claim us all. Unless, of course, there was one who came and took upon our sin and our death himself. And that's exactly what Jesus does, doesn't he? He bears our sin. He dies our death. He pays our price. He receives our judgment. But then ultimately, he defeats death for us, doesn't he? See, just as King Hezekiah didn't do anything to accomplish this military victory, so we do nothing to accomplish our own salvation. We merely trust God and receive his gift of deliverance in Jesus Christ. Some of you guys are like, Pastor Kyle, that does not sound fair at all. Oh, it's not fair at all. But it's good news, isn't it? And it's how God brings things about. And here's the thing about news. You either believe it or you don't. You don't earn it. It just is. We are proclaimers of news that Jesus has come and Jesus has done this. That the insurmountable enemy that we could never defeat on our own has been defeated by Jesus. And we are invited to believe this good news for salvation and live like it's true. That what Jesus has accomplished, he's accomplished for you and for me. That's good news. That's the gospel. That's how we are saved. And there are some here today that maybe have never believed that news. You're you're, you're kind of wondering what is true and you're curious and you're intrigued and you came here today but you've never personally believed that news for your own life and my call to you today is to believe, to trust like Hezekiah that there are insurmountable enemies you cannot defeat on your own. But one came and he did and he did it for you and his name is Jesus. Third, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Have you heard that before? Seriously, I could probably preach that as the big idea of almost every passage in Scripture, couldn't I? Anytime we see someone be like, dang, I'm pretty awesome, we're like, oh, dude. You're going down now. I mean, we read these words of Sennacherib, and, and he's like, what God has been able to touch me? Your God is like all of the other gods that I have defeated. And we're like, You just lost. I don't care who you are. When you take on the Lord, you lose. If you want the God of the universe to humble you and crush you, be proud. Think more of yourself than you ought. Pride goes before the fall is not just a saying, it's a reality. but God gives grace to the humble. In fact, when Jesus is about to preach his most significant sermon of all time, the Sermon on the Mount, do you know what his opening line is? 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed, happy are those who see their own spiritual poverty, for it is they who inherit God's kingdom. Blessed are those who realize that they aren't all it. They are the ones with eyes to actually see and believe the good news. See, whether it was Adam and Eve believing that they were more qualified than God to determine what is right and what is wrong, or King Sennacherib making a mockery of Yahweh, or maybe even you today who thinks that God and his words on matters are somewhat outdated, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so I want to be really practical with the remaining minutes. What are some ways, if this is such a big idea in all the scriptures, how can we practically cultivate humility in our life? I got a couple tips for you. One, practicing humility. Cultivate gratitude. Make a list of all of the things that you are grateful for. But take note of all of the things that you're grateful for that you didn't contribute anything to. That should give you a little humility. If you're honest, the list is quite long, isn't it? Practicing gratitude is not just one of the best things for our mental health. It is. It's also one of the best ways to cultivate humility and a sense of lowness as we realize all of the things we've been blessed with that we didn't do anything to help. And especially Americans need this because we have this belief that we are self-made men and women. We're not. Not one of us are. Now, we live in a great country where everybody has the opportunities to succeed, but not everybody gets the same hand dealt to them, okay? Doesn't mean that we're a victim of our circumstances. Doesn't mean that hard work isn't important, but it does mean that some of us are playing with a different hand. Practice gratitude. Second, learn to praise someone else. Find someone who is better than you at something, something that you actually take quite a bit of pride in, and praise God for gifting them that way. Maybe even pass along the encouragement to them. I see God's hand at your life. And I praise him that he made you that way. You're such an encouragement to me. See how the focus isn't on me at all, but on what God has done? That does a really good thing in our soul. And it's one thing to praise someone for something that we're not good at, right? It's another thing to praise someone who who's good at something that we're good at, but they're better at it, isn't it? Third, embrace being overlooked. Whenever you feel overlooked for something, thank God for the continuing lesson in humility and the continued reminder that you're not that big a deal. You're like, that sounds not very fun. It's actually really good for your soul. See, because when we begin to believe that we are a big deal, and that we're the offended party all the time, constantly being overlooked, it makes us miserable because it fills us with pride. Fourth, look at something majestic. Something majestic that makes you feel small, like Lake Superior. Did you see the waves that were coming in yesterday? Oh my goodness, the power. Or the stars in the sky, or the Grand Canyon, or something in nature, maybe the intricacy of how God makes a leaf. Those will come by July, I hear, right? Marvel at God's design as a way of learning humility. You know, you know how you can even one-up that? Think about God often. Ponder his character, his glory. Think about who he is, his attributes that are both like you and not like you. 
Think about what he has done for you. Think about what he has not done to you. Think about his patience, his kindness, his justice, his wrath, his love, his jealousy, his faithfulness, his promises. Cling to one of those. Think on it a lot. Get better at listening. Grow as a listener. Practice being the best listener you can and truly listen to people. Be amazed. Practice letting go of offenses. Things have a way of stacking up over the years, don't they? We have a tendency to hang on to all the ways that we have been wronged. Let them go. Consider all the ways that your actions and words have hurt other people, either intentionally or unintentionally. And in light of that, choose to lay things down. Let them go. Practice humility. Finally, remember the I'm stupid now principle. You're like, what in the world is that? Any middle schoolers here listening to me? You guys, yeah, you remember yourself when you were like five and the things that you were into? Does it make you want to shake your head now? Like, oh my goodness, I was so dumb. Are any high schoolers in the room? Yeah, do you remember yourself in middle school? How about the college students? Remember yourself in high school and how you had it all figured out? And what do you say about yourself in high school? You're like, I was so stupid, right? How about those who are out of college, into their first career, thinking that you had things nailed after that philosophy 101 class? How do you think about yourself in college now? Or maybe you're in your 30s and you're married, you got kids, or you're, like, you're well into your career and you think about yourself right when you started and all the ideas and dreams and you're like, I was such an idiot. Or maybe you're like me in 40 now. 40 young years, let me tell you. And you look at yourself in your 30s and you thought all the things that you were certain of. The you're stupid now principle is, is the reality that comes crashing on you in any moment when you realize, wait a second, I'm stupid now. Because my future self will look back on me now and not be kind. It's a great way to cultivate humility in our lives, isn't it? <laughs> Some of you in here are like, I'm 80. It's still true. Think about yourself 500 years from now in glory, looking back at yourself and being like, man, that guy didn't get it at all. <laughs> Has a great way of humbling us, doesn't it? Friends, it's easy to look at the story of Sennacherib and, and think, what an idiot. It's much more difficult to allow the story to read us and surface our deep-seated pride. Do you know what else? It's easy in our pride to take credit for God's victory and attribute it to ourselves. I wish that I could say from this point on, King Hezekiah lived happily ever after, but the story doesn't allow us to do that. The remainder of chapter 32 tells us of Hezekiah's pride. It's almost as if he began to believe that the great deliverance that happened had primarily to do with his faith and preparation rather than God's mercy. He gets sick and almost dies and God heals him. But in his pride, he doesn't continue living in a dependent way. In fact, it is under his watch that the seeds of future destruction are sown. He amasses this great wealth and splendor, and he decides to show it off. And there's this young upstart kingdom named Babylon who sends an envoy and some princes, and guess what he shows them? Everything. All of the splendor of the temple. 
all of the gold in his house, all of the military might that he has amassed. And a hundred years later, guess who remembers where all that stuff is? Babylon, the nation that will ultimately bring judgment on God's people. See, in reading Hezekiah's story, as good as it was, we find ourselves yet again longing for a truer and better king, don't we? One who wouldn't just have moments of humility and trust, but would truly be humble, always putting others' needs above his own, only doing what would bring glory to his father, not himself. His name, my friends, is King Jesus. And those who come to him must acknowledge their shortcomings, their spiritual poverty, but in humility receive riches that they can't even believe. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word for this passage and how it provokes us and challenges us and stirs in us a desire to worship you because you are great and we're not. God, help us to live up to who we are in you. Draw us deeper and deeper into your story, which is also our story. God, we love you. Would you make us people of your word? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.